Welcome to 10 Minutes on Democracy. I'm Jason Franklin, Senior Advisor at One for Democracy, and today is Tuesday, May 31st. It's great to be talking with you after over a month off. As I mentioned during our last podcast, I spent most of the last month in Australia working with an amazing mix of philanthropy and political leaders across the country. As I left to come home, Actually, Australia was headed to the ballot, and I, after I landed back here in the U.S., I learned about the incredible electoral victories down under, major victories which will return the Labour Party to power after nine years of increasingly right-wing governance, and wins by independents who won on a platform of gender equity and climate action. Frankly, I'm hoping to bring some of that electoral mojo back here to the States, where so much has been happening and so many challenges stand ahead of us. During the break... We've also been considering some changes to the format of this podcast, and I look forward to sharing more about that with you in the weeks to come. But for now, I'm excited to dive back into a weekly conversation with all of you about some of the critical developments facing our democracy. And boy, are we facing a lot. From the economic instability as markets are continuing to struggle, the announcements today around ongoing shifts by the Fed and how they're trying to fight inflation and Biden's promise to work with the Fed to address labor and supply chain uh, issues, addressing everything from gas prices to baby formula shortages, the ongoing kind of aid and support for Ukrainian pushback against the Russian invasion, but also some of the signs of flagging support for ongoing engagement. There's a lot at the backdrop underneath our politics right now. Uh, but I want to draw and kind of focus in on some of the key developments so far. Uh, first, we've been talking for months about redistricting. We are approaching the end. Uh, and as we do, frankly, optimism is fading. Democratic favored maps have been struck down in a number of states and final maps that are being drawn will make it very, very difficult for the Democrats to keep an already slim majority in the House. The new maps are also going to be a factor to see whether women and people of color lose ground in their representation among our Congress. The changes since last month, you've seen actually 37 more seats that now lean Republican, including 33 out of those 37 are rated safe Republican seats. And you've seen a decline in 10 seats for Democrats. There have been four more seats added into that toss-up category. What that really looks like is that you saw 59 to 28 seats move from unranked meaning the boundaries hadn't been drawn or ranks hadn't been awarded, down to only 28 seats left. Those 28 seats are 26 of those are in New York State, where a judge threw out a more democratically drawn gerrymander, and the new seats that are coming likely to be 16 Democrat, 6 Republican, 4 toss-up. And then the last two seats are in the last state awaiting final boundaries, New Hampshire, most likely everyone expects is a 1-1 split Democrat-Republican, but we'll see how that looks up. If New York and New Hampshire go as expected, the balance would look at 194 Democratic-leaning seats, 211 Republican-leaning seats, and 25 toss-ups, the lowest in decades in terms of competitive seats. And it means that Republicans would only need to win 28% of the toss-up seats, plus those that lean their way to regain control. Flip side, that means Democrats have to win 72% of all the toss-up seats, plus all of the seats that are leaning their way to keep control, and that's just with a one-vote margin. And we already know that the overall look is against Democrats, so it's really, a, right now that we're standing, 
at the almost completion of the redistricting process that it is very likely that Republicans could regain control of the House of Representatives, even if they have a good year, just because of the way the maps are being drawn. Second thing to take into account is looking at the dynamics of primaries. We are now fully into primary season. Primaries are happening. Overall, we're seeing, you know, while Trump is not the only kingmaker and the universal kingmaker in the Republican Party, he is still having incredible success. You're seeing Trump back candidates winning in most of the elections that are close. He did face and uh, significant losses in Georgia, where both governor and secretary of state uh, victories by those who are opposing Trump. But the thing that's important to note is that they were winning against Trump's endorsement by still campaigning with Trumpian policies. So you're not seeing even Republicans who are winning against Trump-backed candidates going to the center. They're just arguing that they're slightly different types of far-right conservatives. So there's a real impact, both of the impact of Trump's endorsement, but also the dynamics of Trump's style of politics and policy on the Republican Party. There have been a few important Democratic primary contests as well, but overall, you're not seeing a ton of Democratic contested primaries. So this primary season continues to really focus on the question of how much impact does Trump have on the Republican Party? You're seeing some openings for departures and separation from Trump, but still the Republican Party largely staying in line with the Trumpian kind of approach, the adherence to the big lie. You've seen efforts on the January 6th investigations are continuing. There have been continued efforts to hide the Eastman memo, even though the court has ordered it to be turned over. There have been revelations about other connections to efforts to overthrow the election. Ginny Thomas, Justice Clarence Thomas's wife, Larry Ellison, and his financial investment in Republicans. But even these revelations have really drawn little interest in the broader public. And questions remain right now is six live hearings coming up. And I've heard from people say like, oh, this is what we've been waiting for. The Watergate hearings had such an impact. Once the public starts to hear these live hearings, it'll change. Possible. I do hope that actually as we learn about the efforts to overturn the 2020 election, it will shift public opinion. But I've also been cautioning people not to place too much hope in these upcoming uh, public hearings because we did not have the same media environment during Watergate as we have today. How much notice will the hearings generate? Will they break through remains, I think, a big question, and not to mention efforts by Republicans to undermine the hearings themselves and claiming that they're illegitimate. Some ongoing subpoenas that are being rejected and ongoing referrals of contempt of Congress to the Department of Justice, but those processes move slow, and it's hard to gain public interest and public attention right now. We're also seeing two other big dynamics since I was last talking with you, you know, both of which are really horrifying. First have been just the latest rounds of gun violence. You know, 19 children and two adults killed at Robb Elementary School in Texas, 10 people murdered at the top supermarket in Buffalo, New York. And these are only two of the latest mass shootings to grab national attention. There have already been over 200 mass shootings this year alone. Over 240 people have been killed, and there were actually 15 mass shootings between Buffalo and Texas. 
And yet only these two were horrific enough to grab national attention. After the attack in Buffalo, the House passed the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act of 2022 by a vote of 222 to 203. All Democrats, plus Adam Kinzinger, Republican from Illinois, voted in favor. All other Republicans opposed it. The Senate is taking it up, but again, they lack the votes to overcome a Republican filibuster. After Buffalo, the Democrats didn't even bring up any gun control measures in the House because they lacked the votes among the Democratic caucus in the House. They're now trying to bring something forward since the attack at Robb Elementary School, but it remains an open question of will there be enough public momentum? The NRA held their conference just days after the Texas shooting in Texas, and nobody backed down for the right to bear arms. And if we know anything from the past is we will have incredible outcry and yet the instrangent opposition to anything related to gun regulation is so intense that it's hard to overcome. The other long time divisive dynamic that we're just wondering how it will play out right now was of course the leak of the Roe v. Wade decision, potentially overturning Roe v. Wade. It is significant in so many levels. One, it was the first breach of uh, Supreme Court confidentiality ever. That's going to be an ongoing narrative. And of course, Republicans are honing in on that and trying to shift the conversation to have it be about the breach of confidentiality. But if we come back to the question of choice itself, there's both really immediate actions. You know, abortion will probably become illegal in 22 or more states if Roe v. Wade is overturned. Um, as expected later this summer. 13 states have so-called trigger laws, which would make abortion illegal immediately if Roe v. Wade is overturned. Another 11 states have significant bans that would be put into action as, as soon as Roe v. Wade was overturned and will likely move, several states already are, move to complete bans soon after. So you're seeing almost the majority of the country, a majority of states would have make abortion illegal immediately or soon after an overturn. But it's also important to note the kind of deeper and longer term dynamics here. One is there's far reaching implications for rights that are not, quote, deeply rooted in history, which was a telling line from that leaked decision. It creates uncertainty for LGBT equality and civil rights broadly, and most immediately for other types of reproductive health care, birth control, emergency contraception, fertility treatment, trans-affirming care. You've already seen far-right political leaders saying they are not ruling out eliminating emergency contraception or even all birth control. And these are all rooted in a shared right to privacy, which if overturned has incredible and far-reaching implications for so many aspects of our law that people are just still coming to grips with and grappling. We also know that there's incredible racialized and class-based outcomes. Who is most likely prohibited from being able to gain access to reproductive health care? And who has the ability to travel farther or to find ways around an overturn of Roe v. Wade? We have known for years that access to reproductive health care is racialized. Access to reproductive health care is split across class lines. And how we think about it and what we grapple with in the uh, weeks and months to come is really critical. And then you know, most immediately for those who are deeply engaged in politics is a question of what will this mean for the midterms? 
Some Democrats have been optimistic that the political landscape could shift in their favor ahead of the midterm elections because of an overturn. But I will say I think the outcome politically is very unclear. Republicans have spent 50 years using the campaign to overturn Roe v. Wade as a mobilizing influence. They've never actually had to grapple with what happens if they do overturn Roe v. Wade. The fact that the right to at least some level of abortion access and some level of reproductive choice is incredibly popular. 80, 90% of the American population consistently say they believe there should be at least some options for reproductive choice. If that's reversed, what will happen? Will people, will that be the last straw that moves people away? Or will it be one more thing that people are willing to just put up with because they believe in other parts of the Republican narrative? And what we know is, as I going back to the top of this uh, podcast, we would need a wave to reverse current projected losses by Democrats in the House of Representatives. This could be part of the wave. You could see, you have seen strong support for Biden and his handling of Ukraine. You've seen some support around the handling of inflation and whether and how that shifts over the coming weeks or months. There is still time for the dynamics of the midterm elections to change, but I sadly don't see a Roe v. Wade decision, an overturn, overturning or shifting enough the political dynamics to prevent a right-wing takeover. The House, the Senate remains much more closely balanced and is a real question, but we are in still an incredibly hard time for our democracy. And sadly, nothing has changed in the month since I last talked with you. But hopefully we get some of that election mojo that from uh, down under and can bring it back across the Pacific. Hopefully things continue to shift in the uh, weeks to come. And I will look forward to talking with you about what those shifts look like next week and as we continue forward. But for now, that's my uh, review of the current developments in our democracy. I'm Jason Franklin, and I look forward to talking with you again next week. In the meantime, please reach out to the One for Democracy team at www.onefordemocracy.org if there's any way we can help support you to take action to protect and strengthen our democracy. Until next week, take care.